0: They always say trust your gut, but one time, my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows, and that was fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support, and Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no. Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb. And then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but We love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash. Whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice like a shopping spree or a spa day or start a whole side hustle, Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Getting Curious, I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. I want everyone to pause for a moment and think of a drag artist. Who comes to mind? What do you imagine them wearing? What are they doing? Where are they? If you thought of a Ru girl or RuPaul herself, we get it, but there's a whole world of drag out there beyond the Drag Race main stage and beyond drag queens. This week, as part of our Pride Beyond Borders series, we're celebrating global drag culture in all its capaciousness. Kareem Kupchandani is an associate professor in the Department of Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies at Tufts University. They are the author of Ishtail, Accenting Gay Indian Nightlife and Decolonized Drag, out later this summer. They also perform in drag as Lahore Badgeristan. Ah, We're asking today, what are the global politics of drag? Comma, honey. Kareem, how are you? I'm so good. I'm so happy to be here. Also, you guys, everyone, pay attention because you need to, like, get on Instagram and look at Kareem's hair on this... (laughs) No, because this hair... You are just these waves and this beautiful color distribution of this salt and pepper on this beautiful bronze fucking skin and these goddamn cheekbones and fucking brows. You're gorgeous. I, you're making a brown person blush and I don't blush. So this is this is the most. <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, like your hair is like the most. Do people just like stop you in your tracks about it all the time? It's been
1: known to happen.
0: It's the curls. It's a really pretty... Did you... You didn't set that with an iron. That's just like your natural curl pattern.
1: Yeah, this is... It hasn't been touched for three days.
0: Outrageous. I swear I'm going to focus, y'all. I just... <laughs> Yay! Yes! Okay, so... I think a lot about in my writing and my just approach to like life that like trauma doesn't make it so that joy can't happen and so that like healing can't happen like it's all these like universal truths and I think right now drag has so much vilification we have all this legislation there's a lot of things that we could be sad about but there's also so much joy and so much amazingness in drag and so I want us to celebrate the breadth of joy and culture that is drag because it's just amazing. Also, Lahore Vajistan, we need to know Miss Vajistan. It reminds me of like Beyonce and Pretty Hurts. Miss Vajistan, where did your name, Lahore Vajistan, come from? Well, she's Dr.
1: Vajistan. Oh, <gasps> Dr. Vajistan. <But>, <laughs> so my drag name came from all kinds of places, but it's part of the Decolonizing Drag Project. And, you know, my, my family is from what is now Pakistan, but because we're Hindu, we were displaced out of Pakistan. So Lahore is a gesture to the city in Pakistan. It has a W because I'm here to work and because (laughs) sex work is real work. And Vajistan, like Pakistan or Afghanistan or Hindustan, it's just a a more capacious way, if we're being capacious on this episode, it's just a, a more capacious way to think about the subcontinent. And, you know, I didn't grow up in the subcontinent. I grew up in West Africa and Ghana. And so I needed a bigger container that could fit all of me. So yeah, that's where the name comes from.
0: Can I call you Dr. Vajistan for the rest of forever? Like, it's like the most amazing.
1: That's the way it's supposed to work. My students call
0: me Dr. Vajistan. Yes, Dr. Vajistan Hunty. So I'm obsessed with where Lahore Vagistan comes from. But Vajistan is like... Sometimes you have to
1: invent your own place, you know? So she likes to say, after the British and the French and the Dutch cut it all up, I, like a good post-colonial queen, like to sew it all back together as a big, beautiful vajistan <gasps> Okay, also, you grew up in Ghana... I'm from there. I have done drag workshops there for a queer theater group there. There's, I mean, there's just, it's fantastic. It's a special place. I don't get to go there that often anymore because my parents moved away, but I grew up in Ghana. I was born in Gibraltar. I'm a big post-colonial mess. Yeah.
0: Okay, Dr. Vajasad. I'd love to know some artists who come to mind for you in that opening. What are their performance styles?
1: Uh, there are like lots of very different folks that come to mind, but the first one is Papi who's an Austin drag king, now lives in California, but who does like punk and gore, but using Chicanex and indigenous costuming and style. So it's not what you expect when you think of like punk and like filthy drag. The other person who really blew my socks off when I saw her is this Black South African queen named Odi Diva, who did a, a solo show that I saw in Cape Town. Who, for two hours, performed in like I don't know how many different languages and just kept us like giggling and laughing and talked to every person in the audience the entire show. And it just was magnificent. And then I, because it's so close, I think about my students who are like 18 to 25 year olds who are doing drag on college campuses and are really learning a lot about themselves and, and the world through drag and that drag is their access to life and beauty. And, and then I think about my aunties and my mom who in Ghana, when I was a kid, I would watch them do drag and they were do it at community festivals and, you know, the men wouldn't dance at, at festivals and, and so the women got into drag and they were like really sexy Bollywood stars. And it was this chance for them to play with masculinity and to flirt with each other in the context of performance. So, so I know it's not like LGBTQ drag, but it is drag. They were like mustaches and beards and short hair. So the ladies would do like drag king work? Fully, like suits and all, binding. Like it was hot. I thought my memories were tricking me. And then I like went back to like find these VHSs and yeah, it was full on drag. It was really
0: great. Oh my gosh. I I love that story. Yeah. So when we think about like your students, 18 to 25, what does it mean Mm -hmm. to you being like an educator and being a thought leader and being a queer performer and a drag artist yourself? And what's at stake for drag performers here and worldwide? So I used to live in Austin, I lived in Austin for two years. And
1: that's where I learned a lot about drag, I was in a drag competition in a bar there. And I started in Chicago and and in Boston and Chicago and Austin, but also in Bangalore and Hyderabad and Delhi and Bombay, where I've done drag drag is drag is to me everyday artistry, right? It teaches us that people have access to creativity and expression and don't need millions of dollars to do it they can feel celebrity and they can feel important especially in a world that is always trying to minimize us us being lgbtq people plus but all kinds of gender and sexual dissidents right people who just disobey the rules of that and i think that drag is our our access to feeling important when the world doesn't want us to and and so all this legislature we're seeing too is as part of that is right re- is really trying to minimize who we are, our excellence, our beauty. And and there's, there's a lot more there too, that drag as work, drag artists who are in nightclubs every day, every night, are actually holding our histories for us. They're reminding us of what used to happen in those spaces that our arrival at this like hard moment isn't the first one, and that they've experienced it over and over again. So I think drag artists really hold our histories and take care of our memories for us. Even when we're like, oh, I'm too old to go to the bar, drag artists are still going to the bar and taking care of the community.
0: And so they remember for us. In Ishtail, you write, nightlife is not outside of politics. Politics are inside of it. What do we take with us and leave behind when we enter a nightclub?
1: So I think when we enter a nightclub, we think we're escaping the world. And nightclubs are built that way right you go into a dark tunnel and you don't know what time of day it is outside and and there's this desire to lose the world and we go in and we want to be desired and we want to make friends and we want to have fun and there's always this intention to like have some magic and love and maybe even some sex but i think that we also take our our, our baggage right we have our values of what is classy, what is moral, what is good. So we, we judge people for how they posture and pose inside of a nightclub. It's in nightclubs that I've perhaps experienced the most uh, blatant forms of racism. You know, people, again, are taking their values of what they what they think a good or bad body is. They, they judge people by their smell, by their look, um, by the way they taste, right? There's all these senses of judgment we're taking, and all of these senses of judgment are actually informed by Race, class, gender. So, so, power is playing out in nightlife in ways that we think like it's the great equalizer. We're all dancing to the beat, but then we judge those people who can't catch the beat, too, right? So, so there's they're just all the things that we thought we left behind are showing up, including femphobia and racism in nightlife spaces that have been built by people of color, that have been built by gender nonconforming folks.
0: Mm. Yes. Is Celeste Watkins-Hayes says, like, who's our expert on um, the HIV social safety net who we're obsessed with, she says that like the American medical system is like, you know, when they say like, oh, we're all in this together. She's like, okay, well, if we're all in this together, we all have like very different boats. Like we're not on the same boat. Like some of you guys have yachts. Some of y'all are on that freaking Jack and Rose Titanic thing. Very different boats. So same thing with experience of a nightclub, like drag performers are going to navigate this experience really different than other people are going to, but how do drag artists navigate the political spaces around the world and in nightclubs? Cause it's kind of an interesting dichotomy, like the idea of like doing drag during the daytime, honey. And then versus like what it's like in a club.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, you talk about daytime drag and you think about the the explosion of drag brunches that are catering to suburban ladies and, and so I think drag, drag artists are really smart about thinking about their audiences and who they're catering to. And they get to know their audiences and they, they learn how to read cues about who's arriving at what time, what does that say about them, et cetera. So, you know, in India, where I've done a bunch of my research, I've found that the drag artists there are making very clear choices about what they're going to perform depending on the crowd. So if they know that they're getting the kind of Uh, young queer folks who are really excited about being a global subject, right? And want techno and they want that kind of quote unquote Western experience in the club. They're going to do Lady Gaga and they're going to do Madonna and they're going to do Nicki Minaj. But if they know that there's like a little bit of an older crowd or where I do my research in Bangalore that it's a distinctly South Indian crowd, they will choose South Indian music in order to appeal to those folks, right? But it's this really sensitive attunement to who their audiences are to be able to take care of them and make them feel seen, but also make their coin at the same time. And I, and I think that that's really important because they're they're balancing work and money <laughs> with the kind of service they're doing for our community to make us feel good. And And so I think that those are still politics, right? How you manage money and how you manage desires are still about power and being able to exert a little bit of power in in those contexts.
0: Yes. And I was also my brain went on a little bit of a like, well, actually, I don't want to talk about cishet people. They get enough. This is about us, which I love.
1: Oh, yeah, hey.
0: You ever own something that inspired you to up your game? We spend so much time in our cars. It's nice to have a car that makes you feel good. It's giving me like you deserve to take care of yourself, girl. Honey, I just love a Lexus because it's giving luxury. It just gives like, nice. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And the features on this GX, honey? Available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Available... Front row massaging seats. Ooh! Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. That's wide! Available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, it's Jonathan Van Ness. freedom without favor, and equality without exception. Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. So how do drag artists stage political dialogues with their audiences when they're getting attuned to like, how do drag artists like stage that political dialogue?
1: So I think drag artists are the ones who are on stage. Everybody's watching them. They've got the mic. Are really powerful in, in a in a space. And so one is that they tell us how to be there with each other. They tell us to be kind to each other. They tell us what the politics of the space are. So when they tell the audiences about tipping and that drag is expensive, they're making labor really explicit. When they tell them not to touch their bodies without consent, they're teaching people how to not over-sexualize trans bodies. But, but then there's also these moments where drag artists are actually staging the politics of coloniality in the club. Chanel Mercedes-Benz is a Chicago performer who I saw do this number where she's performing Breakaway by Kelly Clarkson and she's dressed as a slave and she's got a stick of cotton and every time someone tips her, she gives them a piece of cotton. And you're like, oh my God, what are you doing? Like, this is it's wild right it's it's really a strange thing to see in the club but then the chorus comes on and she starts running she's like breaking away <laughs> and oh. and then like out of out of nowhere she like pulls a baby out and then she like pulls another uh, like a husband out and then she just like runs away through the club and disappears, right? Like she becomes the fugitive slave in the club. And I'm this was really a moment where I was like, oh, like there's room for this in a nightclub, right? It's not, it's not like a sweet ballad about like feel good, blah, blah, blah. It's really like Honey, the performance art. Yeah. And there's room for that, right? And that to me was was a, a real, really important moment to be like. Oh, and and everybody got it right. That's the thing; people are here for it, and and I think that we we think that the the nightclub can be a kind of apolitical space. But actually, there's there's a, a thirst for it. The, the the other my other favorite example of this is Miss Shumai, who's an Asian American performer in L. A. First, she lip syncs to Ali Wong. And then she does Britney Spears' Womanizer, but instead of singing Womanizer, Womanizer, she sings Colonizer, Colonizer, you're a colonizer, baby. It just, it, and like everybody loses their mind. And, and, it, and, and I just think it's, it's really exciting that drag artists are able to teach us that we actually want this, right? We, we want critique in the nightclub. We don't wanna just quote unquote, lose ourselves. We actually wanna be there inside of history and it can be really sexy and fun and exciting.
0: Yes. And can club goers perform like drag labor in the absence of drag artists? Yeah. You know, I,
1: when I started doing my research, I wanted to meet drag queens. It was my first time living in a big city. I'd moved to Chicago. And then I, I went to, to big cities in India, like Bombay and Bangalore. I wanted to meet drag queens and I wasn't meeting them. And and the thing about drag queens is that they're the ones who who would ground me in spaces and i was looking for any kind of drag artistry and i i found that i you know the the kind of work that grounding work that they that drag artists do i found on the dance floor and i found with bartenders and i found with people who invited me in right and said come dance with me right who showed me different ways of dancing and then i wanted to pay that forward so so Early on, people were asking me, who's your diva? Who's your diva? And I was like, I didn't know I was supposed to have a diva, but they taught me about these Bollywood divas and their dance moves. And it really expanded my choreography. It taught me how to be in the nightclub. But then there was this moment in Bangalore and I was with, uh, with our common friend Alok and they were like watching me do research. But there was this moment that a, a song came on and everybody started doing the same step. And they were like, how does everybody know the choreography? And I was like, you don't know this choreography? You don't know this diva? And they're like, yes, teach me, mother, right? And then I pulled them on the dance floor and we started doing the choreography with everyone else. But but it's it's these moments of like care and pedagogy that can happen in the club that sometimes the drag artist is not doing but that people are doing for each other to say we can be here together and these are our histories and memories that we share or can share that become, I think, really uh, valuable, right? And, and so they make us wanna go back to the club despite all the bad things, right? Despite the xenophobia, or racism or classism that we might experience, we actually keep wanting to go back to the club because there's some very special moments where people teach us how to be with each other and
0: be good to each other. Okay, sidebars. So when you're doing research, like at the club, like do you just like type on your notes or something, or do you like are you there with like a legal pad or something? Like how do you like, or do you just like remember it and like write it when you get home? There's never a legal pad, but but wouldn't that be cute if there was? If you were just like giving like,
1: I'd be I'd, I'd be giving like schoolboy realness. Yes. <laughs> But no, I, I mean, I, I, I take notes on my phone. I, I go home and I write it all up. I talk to friends who remember things for me and tell me their stories of the night, and and like fill in fill in details and things like
0: that. Y'all, we can literally like this scholarship is. I'm obsessed. I just am obsessed. Like I love your work. I love your book. I love you. I'm obsessed. Cannot get enough. So we were just talking about a loke. We love a loke. Can't even say how much we love a loke. I was actually like just literally facetiming with them earlier today. So when we think about queer nightlife, how does gender work as a colonial tool in queer nightlife? Because, you know, we think of it as like this free space. And yet at the same time, no matter where you go, there you are. And queer spaces, especially, you know, there's still colonialism all up in this country. So tell us how that can show itself.
1: Yeah. So... I mean when we understand gender as a colonial tool in general it's it's this kind of ideal that is working to restrict and and discipline us and tell us that this is the way we're supposed to be so there's this moment when I was a grad student in Chicago and I was teaching a queer studies class and I invited my students to come watch Lahore perform and and they had to like write responses to the show and it wasn't just Lahore but it was it was at a queer South Asian night and and there were a bunch of other South Asian performers, and my student, in their response, but also in talking to me, said, you know, after your performances, I was clapping. The students white, and a white man, an older white man, put his hand on top of mine and said, "Don't clap for them. They're not real drag queens." But this is this is a, one of the ways that colonialism works, right? Is to tell us what is and isn't proper or good or appropriate. Who the fuck was that guy? Who the <laughs> fuck was he? There is this idea of what good drag is, right? There's the right songs, the right canon of songs. There's there's our understanding of what is beautiful. And the ways that whiteness has been able to actually tell us, like, doing binary gender is the best drag. It's, But it's not just what what we see, but it's how we perceive it, right? It, it's those people who are telling us this is what, what makes it good. And and we should praise it or we shouldn't clap for it. And, and not clapping for it means also not tipping, not giving money, not booking these folks, right? There's actual material consequences to those people who we think are not doing drag well. And I think that that's one of the ways that colonialism, racism, classism are compounding to, to regulate drag.
0: I hate it when I know the answer to a question, but then I'm like, I have to ask it anyway for the people to know. So just so you know, like I, already, I feel like I already know this one. Um... But what do we miss when we see drag only as gender performance?
1: Everything, right? I mean, there's so much going on that isn't just gender, right? And drag artists are so smart and funny and creative. And and if all we're doing is like, did they do gender right? (laughs) We're missing the full story. But one of the things is that gender isn't done just through white masculinity or white femininity. So someone might actually be doing a particular kind of ethnic or indigenous gender performance but we're not seeing it as that because we don't know how to see gender in those ways but there there's there's also my one of my drag children Alicia Botikabab in Chicago who when Alicia was living with her parents she couldn't you know, own a lot of drag paraphernalia. And in fact, her dad threw some out at some point. So when she does drag shows, she's wearing like a stolen skirt from her mom's closet and no makeup and no wigs, maybe a piece of jewelry, right? That looks like quote unquote bad drag, but, Actually, her storytelling in drag is so complicated. And she's telling these stories about the the evils of the skin lightening industry and about women being abandoned by their husbands who have gone off to war. And I mean, she's just, she's so creative and she's like digging from the archives of Bollywood films from the seventies and eighties and nineties. And if all we focused on was, oh, like she's not actually trying with her 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 look, we're really missing out on how smart and brilliant and like what a deep researcher she is to, to be able to tell these stories, historical stories and political stories
0: in those ways. I think we've talked about this a little bit, but I do, I want to like spell it out a little bit more because I think we were getting in there, but like, because we've already established that you don't check yourself at the door. We bring all of our opinions or bring the fullness of ourselves into all of these spaces. So like, How does colonialism shape what we think of as good drag? And you already did say some of these things, but just, like, elaborating on that more.
1: So, I mean, I think we want drag to be binary, right? But we want drag to look expensive. We want drag to look like it's been heavily rehearsed. The other thing is also that I think it 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 grants white people neutrality. so they can perform all kinds of numbers and genres and look right doing it. But people of color are expected to perform in certain genres. And if you're not serving that, you're not doing um, the drag that the audience wants. and And so, Asian American performers, uh, I find, are often really restricted in what they perform because people don't know about Asian and Asian American culture. So they like don't know how to read our performances. So, yeah, we're often sort of stuck in in what's the right quote unquote culture to perform. But but white white folks can sort of move across genre and culture and style in in this kind of
0: neutral way because you see these dynamics play out on Drag Race. I'm just saying, like, you do see this. Like, remember in, like, did you see the UK season with tea and coffee? And she was like, I stand by my cultural frizzy moment. People were coming for her hair. And I loved her fucking hair. And they were coming for And then when Bimini was like, so you're going to clock my drag because you say that my tuck isn't tight enough. But like, what? Like, this look these hosts could never. But I did think it was fierce that World of Wonder included that in the edit. It does lend itself to like a wider conversation, which I think is like cool. But you do see these like opinions come up and like these these ways that like, you know, just internalized misogyny, homophobia and like colonialism and like whiteness has like so informed what people think is like cute or not. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and and it's you know it's it, it's really worrisome when
1: drag artists also participate in that. You know, when a drag mother is disciplining her children to be like, you have to aspire to this kind of binary, or you have to tuck tighter, or when judges of pageants are are replicating that. So so I think there's some work to be done in the drag community too about undoing some of these things and and making drag more capacious for for more people
0: uh i have a confession to make erica our producer wrote the word capacious and i just wanted to play along and be like i know what capacious means this whole time but uh capacious like capacity right
1: Mm. it just takes more
0: Right, and, yeah. and it allows
1: for more, more, yeah. more, more,
0: more, yeah, yeah. So it's not super fun. That's what my guess was. I was like, oh, like does Capacious just mean like, oh, you're so fun, crew? I'm so glad I asked. Okay, they got. Okay, so in Ish Style, you follow quote gay Indian nightlife from Bangalore to Chicago. Honey, I love it. in, like an alphabet, when we go from like a one thing to like another thing, like or when it's like random cities too. Like I, I just love like when we go from like a place to another place in a sentence. Like I just love that. Just like ah. Come on, Bangalore to Chicago! Like, that flight! Is there, like, a direct from Bangalore to Chicago? No oh. direct. No Too direct. long, huh? Yeah. Damn it. Okay, well, whatever. It doesn't matter. Can you take us through some of the clubs and parties that you spotlight in the book?
1: Yes. So, I mean, there's there's sort of a, a really wide range of of what nightlife looks like. So I, I start by talking about house parties and and how we often don't think of house parties as, as nightlife. But also, in Bangalore, there was... Uh, It wasn't a gay bar. It was never, it never labeled itself as gay. But on the third floor of this one bar in central Bangalore, just the third floor, it was gay. And it was gay for as long as the management would allow us to be there and be our, live our best lives and then like got a reputation and and we, the queer folks were asked to leave. But it, I, I focus on, on this one floor of a bar. <laughs> there were also these weekly parties that happened, uh, and in the book I call them Heat Wave, in, in order to protect the, the folks that still party with, with Heat Wave. But over, over there, there was always this contestation of, does the crowd want like techno, dubstep, it's music or do they want Hindi and South Indian music? And and I talk about the cultural contestations over global or local culture there. There were these much more specific parties called Nights that played only South Indian music and and brought in a very different kind of crowd who weren't like, I want instance, I want, they were like, I want to feel my culture. I want to feel the beats that I know that I danced in my house. So these, these were some of the Bangalore parties that I wrote about. In in Chicago there was a party called Jeho, and it's a party that I helped start. And it was a fundraiser, and we played primarily Bollywood music and some South Indian music. But again, it's diasporic folks; it's people who've migrated to the U.S. who wanted to hear their sounds in the club when they're used to just sort of uh, U.S. pop divas. And Jeho is one of a whole sort of like network of queer South Asian. Clubs in in North America and, and Europe. There's Rangila and Beisharam in Toronto, Culture Culture in San Francisco, Shole and Yuva in New York City, and so all of these all of these nights also make it make it into the book. But they they don't happen every month necessarily, Some, one of them does, but, but they're sort of spread out and they're usually run by volunteers and they don't have the same kind of consistency. But, but none, none of the places I write about are actually like a gay bar, <laughs> you know? And I think that that's what we think about when we think about nightlife as a place where people keep coming back to. But in fact, all of these parties move location and
0: time. They're kind of unpredictable in a lot of ways. It's more giving, like, on your feet, kind of, like, switching it up, like, finding the place, like, getting in where you fit in, like, making it work. Whereas, like, a night in Chicago, honey, like, you're going to that, like, what's the yeah. night in Chicago like in your in your experience? The Chicago Queer South Asian nights are
1: once in a while, but people wait for those once in a while. And I remember the friends that I would interview were like, when I know that there's a jeho party, I put in my calendar, like, months in advance so that I can go because it's, it doesn't happen really often. And and people really like live for these moments where they can dance to the songs that they dance to with their parents and they can dance to the most recent like sexy Bollywood songs, but they can feel fabulous in this kind of like super brown way. That's really different, right? You're doing a whole different set of steps and you're lip syncing to different kinds of music. And, and that means that your body is interacting with others in, in different ways. So like, at Jeho, we got a whole player, so a, a drum player, a live drum player once. And so even though the, the music was English pop at the moment, he was drumming to the doll with English pop, and people started doing Pangra, which is this Punjabi dance, and they made a whole circle, and they were like sweating, and it was just a really different vibe than if you're just like at a rave or in, you know at a
0: pop dance floor. Okay, sidebar when Dr. Vajastan went to perform and invited the students to come watch. What did all the students say? Were they like, dang, you really turned up? Like, what were all the people's comments? <laughs> I mean, I was giving them a grade, so they had to be
1: nice. Um, <laughs> no, but but she now, now like my students regularly see me perform, actually. And I think that they they're learning this is this is where you started today, but they're learning that drag isn't just what you see on TV. And you know, when they get to see it close up, when they get to see the transformation of Professor Me to Dr. Vajasthan, they're like, oh, there's actual work here going on. It's not just like someone who's really good at, like, getting on stage and working the crowd, but that there's a lot of thought. There's lots of things attached to my body. How do that these hoes easily-
0: not fucking know that? Like, how do people just not see drag and not know how fucking much work it is?
1: I mean, I think they know that it's work, but I don't think they get to see the closeness of the artistry until you're seeing live performance, until you're let backstage and you see the, like, mess of stuff, you know, and you're like, oh, there's all... And, like, when you show up to
0: class with, like, glue still in your eyebrows, they're like, oh, you've been working. I guess I was just, like, so lucky to be exposed to drag culture when I was, like, in college, when I was, like, 17 and 18. Like, I just was, like, really lucky to be around, like, such cool people for, like, over half my life. Like, I just can't even, like... Like you try making a butt pad, like <laughs> oh Michelangelo God. sculptures up out of couch cushions, like mm-hmm. try to do that, Lauren Boebert. Um. Anyway, we're not talking about straight people. I hate them.
1: No, but I, I had, I had a drag mother who like took me to her friend's house to go sit and sculpt butt pads because she had that electric knife. But, yes. You know, you cut out the butt foam in the in the in the shape of Africa and like yeah. And you gotta like mold it to your butt and like your hips. It's like a whole thing. And it, it was a revelation when I, like, found hips. I was like, I'm stunning. It was really special.
0: If you're like me, the threat of fascism is weighing on you this year. But even when the F word is uttered, way too few of us are considering the full scope of the danger, let alone how to really stop it. The Refuse Fascism podcast, hosted by Sam Goldman, names it, dissects it, and connects in depth analysis of what fascism is with the understanding and urgency we need to defeat it. And she is joined by great guests to discuss the threat of civil war, attacks on abortion rights and trans rights, Trump and the Theocrats, Project 2025, efforts to erase history and critical thinking, and much more. Check out recent episodes featuring Kathleen Ballou, Jeff Charlotte, Sarah Posner, Wajahat Ali. Dahlia Lithwick, and many more. Subscribe to the Refuse Fascism podcast on your listening platform of choice or go to refusefascism.org slash podcast. Let's face it. I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So how, so, and you were just speaking to this, like for like a J-Ho night in Chicago, like that's a way that like drag can connect diasporic communities, like in the United States, like from different cultures, like I a mean, bit in this case, like J-Ho, but like, there's like, I mean, I'm sure that happens like in other cultures and different queer spaces. That's like amazing. I love that. So can you tell us more about like Lahore's backstory and, and how she's evolved over the years and how inhabiting Lahore, honey, has changed how you see drag?
1: Yeah. So, so Lahore came because we were doing Jehovah f- the first time. It was a fundraiser for our queer South Asian
0: organiz- little new baby organization, and we need. What year is this? Two thousand
1: and nine.
0: And so, this is Lahore's literally birthing story. Birth story, yeah. So, it's Obama's first year in office. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow.
1: It was a moment. Yeah, I, I, I got to Chicago and and it was election time. And in Chicago, it was really like the, the city was electric. It was also the first year of Drag Race. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. wow so wow, wow. a lot of things. Angina. In. Oh, God. Angina and Angina's vagina gave us vagistan. Like I mean, uh-huh. but. But really, that first season of Angina and Bibi and yeah, Nina Flower, right? Nina Flower. I mean, these three again diasporic queens really shaped. Be- yes, Bibi's the Harbo. Yeah. yes, yeah. love yeah. her. Yeah, yeah. I went to Roscoe's to see her live after she won. I was really obsessed because again, I'm from West Africa, and so like, she she meant a lot. She meant a lot to me as the winner. But but I, I didn't know anything about how to do drag. I just, we needed to, we were doing a fundraiser and we needed a performer and I was like, sure, I'll do it. And I made up this name and I bought some really cheap makeup. I've, I've, I've learned otherwise that it's not great to use that. Shake and go wig, thrift store clothes. But I was performing songs that the crowd wanted to hear. So I did this mix of a song called Chama Chama, which actually is in Moulin Rouge.
0: I know that song. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and M.I.A.'s Paper Planes." I know
0: both of those songs. Yes.
1: You should have been there. Uh. So that was my first performance. And, and funny enough, like, I, I blacked out. You know, I. But there was another researcher in the space that day who filmed it, so there's actual footage of it that exists. And the the fundraiser kept happening, so Lahore kept performing. And she then like uh, went to Austin and entered a competition and learned a lot about how to do hair and makeup and pads and how to how to dress for her new body. Over the years, you know, I've been doing this for 10 plus years and now I'm sort of the older South Asian queen on the scene. So Lahore likes to say she's everyone's favorite auntie and she's really embraced the role of an auntie. And, and I, I made this music video called Sari that is a riff on Justin Bieber's sorry about wearing saris as an auntie. And and that's just her signature look now.
0: Oh, my God. um. Yeah. Does Lahore ever like still do like tits out? Sorry, like do you like? Because not to like challenge your style, but I'm just saying, like, just because like you're an auntie doesn't mean that you can't like be like a sensual auntie with like tits out. Like the people want to see tits out, like in aunties. Uh, she's a sexy auntie. Yeah, sexy. Like yeah, yeah, sensual yeah. auntie. sensual
1: auntie. Okay, yeah. yeah so I, I I don't know if you know, but there's a whole category of South Asian porn uh-huh. called auntie porn. And it's usually women in saris who are like, here's the sexy way I take off my sari and undo my, undo my bra. Ooh. And, and so that is the auntie she aspires to. But, but one of the things you asked me also is like, what has this changed about how I see drag? And like, I mean, it's really taught me that, you know, the, the things I didn't know, like my students didn't know till they took my class, but the drag is work, that it's a craft, but also that like drag is our history. You know, and that I'm not the first one to do it. Actually, there's such a history and centuries-old history to what we do that's been about pleasure and, and joy and fun and critique. And then also, you know, becoming drag auntie and having all these these babies through my classes and through the, through the nightclub
0: is that drag is about
1: care and drag is about taking care of our futures and making a future for ourselves.
0: Fuck yes. Also, like... I feel like we're the same age and I had a journalist refer to me as a community elder, like last year, like I just turned 36. Like, I feel like I was just sneaking into bars under my drag mother's like skirt, like just years ago. Like, cause she just wore these like really big Cinderella skirts and I would like pop a squat under there and I would just like waddle in underneath her skirt. Like that's how I like snuck into clubs in Phoenix. Like, and now we're, and now I'm a community elder. So I just, I guess I would just say like, enjoy Enjoy your twinkness, enjoy your early 20sness Like, and cause then you blink, and next thing you know, honey, we're in different roles. And I like that for us. It's I mean, I have lower back pain, but I'm gorgeous. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, acid reflux sucks,
1: but no, not that acid
0: reflux.
1: But I also have to say, like, 40 is this is the most beautiful I've ever felt, right? I like You look I, amazing. I, th- well, thank you. But I feel it, right? I feel like drag has taught me to take. Uh, take possession of my body, right? And I think that that's actually really important. I style it the way I want now. I, I know that I have options and that gender doesn't just have to happen to me. I can do it, right? And that is what drag teaches us.
0: Oh, that's so good. Take us to church or take it... I don't, I, no, i got to decolonize <laughs> that phrase. <laughs> take us to... um, What's like, what's like Hindu? Take us to temple, honey. What's it... <laughs> I, I I like take us to church, but but uh, take us to temple is good too. Yes, I love it. Um. Okay. So um. Okay. So you write that both gayness. I thought this was really interesting. So you write that both gayness and nightlife in India are seen as Western imports. Who in India holds these views? So, you know, a lot
1: of people. But but the way I'm writing about it is that there's this. Sudden anxiety due to globalization. So, in in the early 90s, India opens up its economic borders to Western investment, and suddenly there's Coca-Cola and MTV and all of these foreign imports, quote unquote, that that you know people were bringing in in other ways, but suddenly there's this this barrage of new products and and visuals of like Baywatch, you know, coming in. So suddenly it's like. People are like, what is the sexual impropriety that's coming with these kinds of white bodies and nightclubs and discos? Mind you, there were discos in India before this, right? I mean, if you, if you see like 1970s uh, and 80s Bollywood cinema, like the disco shows up a lot. It's not like it's brand new. But both public forms of sexuality and the nightclub become these two places where they're like, oh, it's globalization that brought them in. And, and so that's, that's where like a real sort of hysteria around both of these things shows up. And so it's a variety of people who hold these views, but that's, that's how I'm writing about it is like the, and and I'm doing my research 20 years or 20 plus years after this. So there's like a whole generation now, now parents are seeing their kids. Who are participating in this quote unquote gayness and this like new, suddenly new nightlife scenes? And and actually, it it does happen like in Bangalore. Bangalore is known as Pub City because it's the tech city, and people want to cater to these people who have newfound income. So they like bring in architects from the UK to build pubs that look like British pubs, and they're so they are trying to cater to newfound Western sensibilities, but, but it's, it's not like these things weren't there before. It's just that there are more of them and people start to get anxious. Gay nightlife, when, it, when you put them together, gayness and nightlife, right? Then it produces a lot of anxieties about like, what are these gays doing? Why are they partying? Why are they so sexually explicit and illicit? Why can't they be less visible in,
0: in those senses? So is Bangalore and, like, India more widely, like, regulated gender and sexuality in recent decades Is a response to this, like, idea that nightlife and queer culture are Western imports?
1: Yes, but there are also some local things going on there as well. So globalization is happening. Migration is happening not just into India, but within India. And you find that—so one of the things that happens specifically in Bangalore is that migrant women are dancing in nightlife spaces, and they're not stripping— but they're dancing in maybe like sexy kinds of ways in for, for men and the, the city tries to police nightlife and there, there was a ban on social dance. They're like, if there's alcohol and or dancing or music, we will shut you down. And so like police were going to bars and like I, I was in a bar once and my friend was just sort of bopping his shoulders and the owner was like, hey, The police are going to shut us down if you keep bopping your shoulders like it was that severe but but again it's these anxieties about like people moving across borders suddenly and and with that comes like things that look like women taking charge of their sexuality and queer people having too much fun and we have to regulate these things and so these places were called dance bars and a lot of the dance bars were closed due to that I mean, even at karaoke, people like people could sing, but they couldn't dance. <laughs> Is it still like that? No, no, no. This was like two thousand six to two thousand twelve ah. ish, but it was it was it was not cute. But but again, queer people find a way, and they would like party on the wrong night of the week when the mm. police weren't watching. They would party in the suburbs, like far away from the city center, in order to. Stay open later so so I think that like queer folks really found a way to navigate that time in in a really careful way, like we need our fun, right, especially when we're denied pleasure and joy every day we We found ways to have fun and and I really applaud the the nightlife organizers and the the creative ways that people just navigated that that weird funky time but one of the things that why i think it's really important to tell that story is it reminds us again that like the policing of sex work and the policing of women's bodies affects queer people too you know and that's that's this fascist moment we're in right now where the policing of of people who have uteruses right and the the ban on drag
0: have everything to do with each other absolutely so yeah in the aftermath of the city's dance band, like, what drag styles, what kind of energy has emerged from that era? And um, what risks do people still take on when they go to a queer nightclub? So, drag has totally exploded <laughs> post this kind of
1: dance band moment. And also with RuPaul and, of course, like, the, the handful of South Asian queens who've appeared in the world of wonder franchise, like props to them for, for creating models for us to, to, to play with. But now there's, you know, where, when I was doing my research, there was parties only once a week, uh, if that. And, and so now there's like parties three to four times a week. Mm -hmm. And, and it means you don't have to like, clear out your calendar and make sure your Saturdays are free. You could go on a Sunday night to like a evening thing. So, so that's just nice to have, but also with more parties means more opportunities for drag. And so you've got themed nights with drag king only nights, you've got South Indian drag only, you've got nights dedicated to Bollywood divas. So, so there's much more variety and, and, it's, I mean, it's really exploded. I was in Bangalore twice in the last year, and there's just so many new performers. What's actually really lovely to see also in India is that drag artists are traveling around from city to city and performing for each other, and there's just a lot of variety, a, a lot of talent, and I'm amazed. I'm amazed every time I go because there's more and more and more, and I love it.
0: Ah, Love, and I love that you've been there, like, to, like, see that happen, like, in real time. That's so fucking cool. Yeah. Okay, so, you were just mentioning before, like, we're in this moment in the U.S., such a rise in anti-LGBTQIA plus legislation, so many drag bans. So many fuckers just out there doing the fucking most. And at the same time, we're in this moment where, like, the drag race empire is more popular than ever uh, in the midst of all of this anti-queer legislation. So how are you processing this wave of legislation? I think it's it's a deeply anti-trans set of legislation.
1: It's anti-sex. It's anti-sex work. And it's using really old, fake stories, <laughs> That we have to protect our children, right? There's no empirical evidence, right It's just a bunch of myths that grooming is happening that children are need are in need of protection and we've seen what happens in the u s when we say it's children at risk, right, but children have often been used as pawns in these in in American politics, right when we say white uh young white girls are in danger. <laughs> And it leads to like attacks on black life, right? When when we demonize other people and create real material risks for, for them. So I think it's terrifying, but I also think it's completely unfounded. And and this is not the first time that gender dissidence has been criminalized. And, and I think that it's really um, a consolidation of many forms of patriarchy that are trying to control bodies and genders and birth and... Uh, and young people as well and make and make young people scared about their desires and 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 joys and pleasures
0: there is so much to unpack there I mean I think if you're at this moment if you after this episode if you want to listen to like Dr. Jackie Antonovich on our history of abortion or if you want to listen to um, Jen Mannion on you know, our queer ancestors who were transing gender in like the 1800s and 1700s, it is just so true that this is, it is not the first time. We are in the midst of, you know, an upswing, but it isn't the first time. But I do think that this idea that drag performers are a risk to children, like, there are so many risks to kids that are happening, like, between child abuse, sex abuse, not having enough food, not having enough education. Like, right. I mean, there's serious issues that, like, we're not talking about, and and we're talking about, I mean, we didn't have drag and queer performers on TV when I was little, and I turned out gay as fuck. Like, it was just, like, because we are so ingenious, like, I just made, like, figure skating and gymnastics my queer expression. Because we didn't have, like, you know what I mean? Like, we're always gonna find a way. Uh, you can't stop nature, and we're natural. So what are you gonna do? And, you know, I think
1: straight people also love drag and love doing it and 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 we we've seen all these like cases of you know uh republican legislators in drag and they're like no it was just for fun it's not real but actually there's a real joy to playing with gender right and getting to know ourselves through gender and and gender expansion and and it's so it's it's really sad that people like refuse that piece of them themselves and like i said my aunties were doing drag right they, they taught me drag before drag taught me drag. And, and I, I think that we, we, we can't refuse all the multiplicity of drag and we need to own all of it to say, actually, it's everywhere all the time. Mm.
0: So how can drag performers and audiences stay resilient right now? And also, how can fans of drag show up for drag performers, especially ones in like places like Tennessee, Texas, that are having their livelihoods and their like way of life be challenged?
1: Yeah so i think one one of the things that the current moment has produced is to say everything that drag is not right drag is not sex drag is not dangerous in in fact i think we have to start saying what drag is and one is that it is sexy and it is dangerous and we need to like lead it to that danger and use that danger to critique uh the the violence around us it's it's drag can be so smart and interesting and and we just have to lean into that so I I think actually, instead of trying to defend drag so hard and say what it's not, I think actually jump right into the, the weirdest parts of it and, and play with that. I think invest in beauty and, and make drag for us. So the point of it is to make drag for us, i.e. queer and trans people, not for them. <laughs> Ie those who don't want it, right? So yes. don't censor yourself. Really, really make the drag that we need to see. And for those who are in the audience, just keep going. You know, I think if if drag if drag bans are being enforced and you can't go to shows, you know, venturing for performers, especially local performers wherever you are, because they need it, drag is a livelihood too. Uh, but also just keep going to shows. Bring people. The thing is that when you go to a drag show, it becomes really evident that drag is
0: not those things that people say because they're evident that it is joyful and it yes. is community based and it is super fun and inclusive and appropriate
1: and and something happens like when you when you're in a drag show like even if it's like something that you don't understand, something happens to your body and you're like I want to understand this and I want to be here. And the other thing I'll say is like, take your kids to drag shows. My best audiences are kids. I love having kids in the audience. They're sitting at the edge of their seats. They 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 fully lean into the magic and the fantasy that we're producing on stage. And I wish more adults could learn from kids how to watch drag actually, and lean into fantasy and joy and world making and all of those things.
0: So... Aside from you, because you're doing such a good job, honey, who's working to expand our understanding of good drag?
1: So so one is like, let's throw out good drag altogether, maybe. And like yeah. let's just expand drag, period. But there there are two moments on drag race where I was like, oh, they're teaching us on screen what local drag looks like. And that's Willow Pill's talent show, where she like had the the toaster and the 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 bathtub and then Crystal Method performing oh, as a bird.
0: I her- love Crystal Method. She's one of my favorites ever. I think she's so fucking genius.
1: But this is so I'm so used to seeing both of those kinds of genius like every week. Yeah. <laughs> at a drag show. And I, you know, I think that that kind of weirdness and offbeat stuff is actually all over our, our quote unquote local drag scenes. So just like, Those two are teaching me that like, just go see local drag all the time. But there's um, a scholar named Shaka McLaughlin who has a book called Dragging that is really about dangerous forms of drag that push beyond comfort and ease. My friend M. Leslie Santana, who's a professor at UCSD is publishing a book about drag in Cuba and is celebrating all kinds of drag from drag in the home to the really fancy club spaces that cater to tourists to activism and protest. And it's, it's like a really brilliant book. There's a, a a curator in New York City named Emigrate, who hosts an all Asian drag show called A Plus. But it's that idea of the plus, right, that says, I'm going to break the boundaries of what we think of as Asian or Asian drag and reach all the way from the Middle East to all the diasporas, including like Asian Caribbean diasporas, and have women queens and trans queens and kings and monsters that just like, it it it's not just pushing our idea of drag but our idea of asia and asian diaspora the artists who make like really janky mixes and perform you know i just like you don't understand why these songs live together but they live together and they like teach you something new that those are like my favorite kinds of performances to see they'd like take me on a roller coaster drag swaps where like drag artists are just like come take clothes and like come on mutual aid Mutual drag aid, it's like really special. And then the last place I would say is ball culture where, you know, ball culture is teaching us like all the extremes that like realness really matters and like realness, it has such value. And then on the other hand, you put on a dusty wig and you have some like beautiful, skillful moves but are not performing like, a binary gender. and both of those are val- have value in the space and can be actually measured and judged and thought about and critiqued, but all belong in the same universe. that like that is that is really exploding uh, what we know of as
0: as drag. What's possible if we decolonize drag?
1: everything. I, th- I think if we understand that colonialism is this project of dispossession, extraction, privatization, then decolonial drag is then abundant and available and accessible right so to decolonize drag i think you just you make more available so we acknowledge that we have predecessors and drag is not this new thing and and we make room for for performers who don't look like good drag or don't look like drag at all and who aren't using the gender categories that we're used to but are still invested in Putting themselves on stage to create a world for us to live inside of, and and be fantastic, and celebrate gender and sexuality and all of its magnificence, and and I think at that point we just see that drag is everywhere, all the time, and it's integral to our lives, and and we we don't question whether it's moral or not, or it's good or not. We just it just is, and it's part of our fabric in our DNA and our everyday lives. And, and for me, it is right. I'm, (laughs) I'm trying to live that by like going to drag shows as often as possible. And I'm like, this, this kind of is my life. And it's not just research. It really is like life giving to me to see beauty as often and every day as I can. Ah,
0: yes. As I mean, RuPaul says, honey, you're born naked and the rest really is drag. I mean, your job, the clothes you wear, how you present in life, like (laughs) everything, everybody is. I mean, everything, like the way that we all present in our life, like it really is true. I mean, this whole, our whole society, our whole egos, like everything we do are these like costumes that we put on. And this expression Mm -hmm. of that, you know, not like a bad costume, but it's true. I mean, it's like our whole life experiences. And that's the thing is like costume is often thought of as fake. And I'm like,
1: screw authenticity. Let's be like let's have like lots of selves and like, let's be
0: different kinds of authentic and different kinds of fake whenever we want. So if you're just following the Rue girls on Instagram, you are only getting half the story. I also would love for us to do just like a little beat when your episode comes down of like, who are your favorite Queens to follow on the gram, which needs to be like its own standalone piece for our Instagram. So if you're listening to this episode and you're obsessed and you want more honey, then you better go check that Instagram because we're going to put it all over there. Cause we are not going to put cream on the spot like that right? Like now, but check our socials for that. And we need to know, uh, because you're on the gram, right? Are you on the TT? Are you on the gram? Where are you real active? I'm really
1: active on Instagram. There's Kareem Puff, which is like my professor life. And there's at Lahore Vajistan, that's my drag life.
0: Yes. Okay. Smash the follow on both. Okay. So, but what's next for your work and for the work of uh, Dr. Lahore Vajistan? What's going on?
1: So I've had like a very exciting year and I've been touring a solo show called Lessons in Drag where Lahore lectures about Kareem's research through lip sync and dance. But this summer I'm going to be a scholar in residence uh, on Fire Island at the Fire Island Artist Residency. And as part of that, I get to host a big South Asian drag extravaganza on July 30th. And I'm really excited about that. And then in uh, the fall, I start a fellowship that allows me to go back to school for a year and I'm going to go to fashion school in New York and maybe Lohor will be able to make her own clothes after this. But I'm just really excited to like, learn about uh, South Asian fashions. And I wrote a song about saris. I need to be able to say more than just that song. So I want to learn about South Asian fashion and globalization and textile and fabric and touch it and feel it and sew it and all of those things.
0: Wow. You are a busy person, henty. I can't wait for your design school extravaganza. I know. I can't wait for it either. Ah, honey, I had so much fun. I feel like we learned so much. Y'all, you need to be following Dr. Lahore Vajistan yesterday. Follow Cream yesterday. We love you so much, Cream. Thanks for coming on, getting curious. Thank you. This has been a joy. I'm so happy to be here. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. You can learn more about this week's guests and their area of expertise in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at curious with JVN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Chris McClure with production support from Emily Bosick and Julie Carrillo.